This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. I'm Chris McCarty. And I'm Robbie Greenfield. And this is the Extra Time Podcast. Emma Hayes. It is a name that will not be familiar to many. And yet, and we're maybe overblowing this somewhat, but it's a story worth talking about. She could be about to become what, Matthew Fortune? She could be the first woman to manage in the professional men's game. That's amazing. Yes. It's not going to happen. Not even that it's not going to happen. Oddly. Oh, careful. Where are we no, going no, 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 no. Well, as I told you off Oddly. air. As I told you off air, Chris, you've handed me an absolute hospital pass no, here because I'm definitely going to offend some people but somewhere hey, listen, along the line. No, come on. Forget offending anyone. An honest opinion. I mean, Emma Hayes. Bit of background first. So Emma Hayes, right, she's the current Chelsea uh, women's manager. Correct. Who are, Chelsea are top. They're unbeaten in 33 games. They've conceded six goals all season. They've got a game in hand currently. She, since she went there in 2012, she's won seven trophies in five years. Mm. Okay, look, it's not Sir Alex Ferguson prolific, but it's a pretty impressive job, seven right? Seven and five's good. I've been reading some, good. In, in, in research for this, reading a lot of information about where Chelsea were when she came in and where Chelsea are yeah. now. She is, and this was a great Paul quote from a, from a Chelsea blog, she's transformed them from a club into an institution. Every aspect of what Chelsea women's football is, does, stands for, is immeasurably better than it was when she moved in. So we're not just talking about a woman who takes charge of female footballers and makes them play quite well. Tactically, club culture, player recruitment, standards of everything across the board. She came from a job in the US where she was director of football operations and manager. This is not just a woman who throws good players out onto the pitch and hopes that they do well. She understands how this game works. She understands top to bottom what is required to run a football team. So going back to my dramatic pause when you asked me the question, (laughs) I'm going to suggest something that is going to upset any AFC Wimbledon fans who might be listening, that's a club close to my think heart. The club's big enough. They're from for my Hayes. They're from it's my what, hometown. That's what you're about to say, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think that actually a relegation struggling, hopelessly out of form for the best part of two, three years, League One side is actually a bit disrespectful. I think if you consider the likes of Phil Neville with no managerial yeah. experience going into the women's big, the biggest game in women's football in England, Thanks, and then John, getting yeah. a cracking job over in the MLS as a result of that. Giving Emma Hayes a gig, a job, by the way, I should say that Phil Neville did a pretty abject... Oh, uh, an England job. Semi-finals of the World Cup. It went pretty downhill after that. Attitude-wise, club culture or culture-wise, not done a sterling job. If you compare it to what Emma Hayes is currently achieving with Chelsea, I think AFC Wimbledon is actually a step down. Look, trailblazing, history-making absolutely iconic move though it would be and set the groundwork for other people to do that i still think if she bides her time a little bit longer really matt come on now really yeah i think we're there chris i've got to be honest i I think we're there i think i think in the current political climate across an entire range of topics that i definitely don't want to get into on a national radio <laughs> conversation i think we are there i think there should be an opportunity oh, for a woman be. what there should be is very different to the fact that there is i mean right now and again we have to point out this is speculation that our mm. name has been put into the mix i know joey barton who was on the episode four of the Robbie before the podcast with us last night he's another name that's been linked with this afc wimbledon job so her name has merely been mentioned uh, on a number of outlets in fact most of the outlets are running with this because there is a big 
big story. You know, of course it is. There's no female. But would she be sacrificing herself for history's sake? I think she would by taking this first opportunity that has genuinely been spoken well, about. Well, again, Emma needs to weigh it up. And again, for a conversation she has with AFC Wimbledon, she needs to, to see that the environment is the right one for her to, to go in there and flourish. But it is going to take, and who was it that said this recently to me, that you very rarely get a job when it's all rosy in the garden. <laughs> the reason that there are jobs True. available is because it's not all rosy in the garden. So for someone like Emma Hayes, I'm a little bit different from you. Should we be there yet? Yes. Are we there yet? I'm not sure we are. And for, for AFC Wimbledon, there's a reason that, you know, this is the first time we're really seeing. I remember Hope Powell, the former England yeah. manager, remember a story, what are we going back a decade or so ago? She was linked with a director role per se. This is a managerial role, third tier of English football. As much as AFC Wimbledon have been struggling, if Emma, and she's backed it up in the women's game, if she was to go in there, Matt, and pull them away from danger, that's a heck of a story. Yeah, quick win. You know, you make a good argument. A quick win from a side. Look, they're not absolutely mired in relegation, but they have been going backwards for a couple yeah. of years, AFC Wimbledon, for a, a very, very quick issue. For anyone who listens to this show that doesn't actually know about AFC Wimbledon, the original Phoenix Club, truth be told, they were obviously the crazy gang back in the 80s and 90s, have come up through uh, from right down, right at the bottom. They've bought their own... Uh, they, they moved into Kings Meadow, the local club run by a non-league Kingstonian. They were there for, blimey, 10 years, 12 years, and they've gone back to their spirit home in the last six to eight months uh, Plough Lane in Wimbledon Plough Lane, yeah. show me the way to Plough Lane as my good friend Sean regularly sings when he comes to <laughs> Arsenal games with me because that's just the way he is so listen they're a club that have done things differently for, for a long long time they're still very much fan owned I believe one of the, the CEOs there is still the guy that had started and been at that very first brilliant uh, training pitch essentially auditions for players to join them yeah, way back Clapham at the beginning Coleman. yeah where I used to play Sunday League very, very badly. Not good enough to play for AFC. I was going to say <laughs> that's why you were not there that day when they put so, out the casting so, call. So maybe it is a good fit. Look, I just think, I just think it, it feels. You've made a great argument by saying that look, jobs are very rarely given up when things are going well. I take that. I just think it's the sort of thing that someone at the end of a look, this is not an example for you because I don't think she would walk into the Crystal Palace job. However a team that have gone through a process with a manager who is coming to the end of his own career, as in Roy Hodgson, steps away and hands over, feels like a much more valuable thing for the listen, future of the women's let's game. Let's be honest, despite the fact we're championing, uh, championing the rights of, of men and women, equality and all, Emma Hayes is not going to be considered for the Crystal Palace. Job. No, I mean in, in that situation. So if it was a championship club where a manager has been there for a prolonged period of time and is, is, is sort of moved on with the blessing of everybody at the club it feels a bit do you know what maybe it feels safer Chris maybe it feels like her going into a club that are going backwards and struggling in a big big way and it not working could set the entire process back further back than if she does a bang average right. job this is extra time it is India against England. India back on home soil. That was after their historic Test Series victory. It was secured at the Gabba in Brisbane. A first defeat for the Baggy Green since 1988. It was done so with a glut of youngsters. It was done so without their inspirational skipper, Virat Kohli. The bad news for England 
He is back for this series. And one man who will be watching it all unfold with a beady eye is Chetan Narula. He made such a big impact the last time he was on. Delighted that he's agreed to pop on now. And Chetan, we say a very good evening to you, my friend. Good evening, Chris. Glad to be back. Yeah, it's lovely to have you back, Chetan. And listen, I've got to ask then, the last time we caught up with you, the whole country cock a hoop with the way that India performed down under. I take it that with this series upcoming, is it one of genuine excitement that they can go on and turn the screw and book their place in that ICC World Test Championship final? Well, absolutely, Chris. I think you've uh, hit the nail on the head there. Uh, Test cricket uh, just got a, another win, you can say, with, with that win in Australia. And India-England is always a good contest as well. England, one of the top cricket nations, uh, they give a lot of primacy to Test cricket as well. And there's a small matter of obviously qualifying for the World Test Championship final. It's basically um, almost a straight shootout between India and England. Australia still have a bit of a chance, but they're not touring South Africa. So <laughs> uh, there's also the matter that, you know, Channel 4 will show uh, free-to-air Test cricket again, once again in England. So all in all, I think uh, this is the first time that cricket is coming back to India since the pandemic began. I mean, mm-hmm. the IPL happened in the UAE, and after that, the Indian team went to Australia. So... Yeah, we can't wait for the action to begin uh, 9.30am on Friday. Yes, indeed. Chennai is the home of this first test. And, well, the ominous, uh, I guess, thing from an England perspective is that all the big boys, I say all, majority of big boys are back for India. Virat Kohli, of course. You've got Ishant Sharma, Ravi Ashwan, Jasprit Bumrah. I mean, it's a tall order for England. India, overwhelming favourites for this? Oh, absolutely. India uh, are one of the better test sides at the moment, and uh, they're, they're almost unbeatable at home. Uh, they've created that sort of a history. They've created that sort of a legacy of the past two, three years. Even the last time England came here, uh, it was almost the same setup that they had under Joe Root. Um, they came here in 2016-17, and they lost 4-0 out of five test matches. Uh, beg your pardon, that was Alistair Cook at that time. So, um Joe Root was just coming up as, uh, you know, the next in line. But, but the task is uh, cut out in front of Joe Root, in, in fact. So if India can replicate the sort of pitches they had, and when I say they had pretty decent pitches, they were flat tracks, they were not turning tracks, which, which provides for an even contest on, on, uh, on Indian soil even. Uh, it's hard work for the Indian bowlers as well. For the first three days, the batsmen can score good runs. Last two days, the spinners come into play. So um, it's going to be an even contest in terms of the pitchers, but India will be overwhelming favourites because they have got that formula perfected of uh, winning in India. Yeah, let's talk about some of the selection dilemmas, if you will, that are facing the Indian the Indian team and, and the selectors. You look at the bowling department, and I would imagine there's probably three, let's be honest, three that if fit walk straight into that team. Boomer, Ishan, Ashwin. What are we looking at? What do we suspect Virat Kohli is going to do in this first test with regards to bowlers? Are we looking at four or are we looking at five? Uh, from what I'm hearing uh, the reports from Chennai is that India are looking at five bowlers. They, they'll pro- probably play Ashwin, Kuldeep and uh, Akshar Patel as the spin combination, uh, which obviously hints that the, the Chennai pitch is going to be a bit flatter. It's not going to be a very spin-friendly track. I mean, there will be spin probably from the fourth day onwards, third, late on third day. But it's not going to spin immediately. So I think uh, that's what it's hinting at. Also, the fact that Ravindra Jareja is missing the first two test matches and he is one of the top all-rounders in world cricket at the moment, um, so with, with Kuldeep in there, there and Akshar Patel in there with his left-arm spin, or in fact their left-arm spin, both are different bowlers, but both are left-arm spinners. So Akshar can bat a bit, Kuldeep can bat a bit. So they're trying to replicate and trying to get 
you know, a summation of two players and combining them to create what Jareja would do. If Jareja was there, I think India would play the extra batsman and just a four bowler. That would be that would be enough. But uh, India just banking their spin department uh, a bit. Obviously, you don't need that need it uh, that much because at the other end you have uh, Ravichandran Ashwin because he is a fantastic bowler. Whether it's whether he's playing home or away. But, uh, yeah, at the moment, it sounds like India are showing up uh, with five bowlers. I think the other scary aspect, if you are an English cricket fan, is the fact that Virat Kohli, now, new father, of course, he left after the first test down under, so he missed all the fireworks there, and he's a very proud man, and I'm not for one second suggesting that Virat Kohli was not a happy camper when India won that test series, but he's also, as we know, a supreme competitor. He will be itching to get back out there, just to remind everyone that he remains the top dog in Indian cricket, correct? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. He's, he straight away walked into the team. It's his team. He's the captain. Uh, Ajinkya Rahane, you know, he led India to that fantastic series win, but he's categorically said that I'm the vice captain and I'm going to take a back seat and let Virat Kohli do his thing. So, uh, look, um, India won in Australia, but there's, there's a lot of work that has gone behind the scenes in the last four or five years. And there's a definite... Virat Kohli imprint on that side. Without that Virat Kohli imprint, without that competitive spirit, maybe not as volatile when he's on the field. But even then, they were aggressive and they were, you know, very competitive. And that's 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 an imprint of Virat Kohli because, like you said, he's a very very competitive cricketer. He'll he'll be he'll be looking to make a point that you know he's like you said he's still the top dog. He's still India's best batsman across formats. He's uh, arguably the best batsman in the world uh, at the moment. So playing at home. He likes uh, playing against England. He has that duel with James Anderson whenever they face off each other. Last time around England game, he scored big, big runs. He got that double hundred in Mumbai. I was there covering that game. What a special knock it was. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it might sound as I'm warning England off, England fans off. But, yeah, it's, it's going to be a very, very tough challenge for it England. It certainly in is. Listen, I'm sure Chris Silverwood and Joe Root are not listening. In fact, they're... Definitely not listening to this. So whisper this one quietly, John, and if you can. What are the weaknesses? Give the England fans out there, for I'm sure there will be a number of them, give them some hope. Where can India be beaten? Well, it's uh, basically the batting lineup. That's that's what uh, is going to count, really, because if England's bowling attack, if they can hit upon a formula which uh, which gets the top order out, Early, I mean, you look at Rohit Sharma and Shubman Gill, they are the new opening pairing for India. Both of them superb batsmen. If they see off the first hour, then they go against the spinners and get those big runs. And then Steshwar Pujara comes in and he faces, you know, deliveries all day long. He can bat all day long. Get the top order out, get into the middle order and uh, early wickets. Don't, don't let India score 400 runs, basically. Anytime India scores 400 runs, the game is going to be over. So that's, that's, that's the only chance England have. Get your bowling methods right. Uh, make it a pace-heavy attack. Get your spinners to play a, play a secondary role. No disrespect, but I don't think England have the spinners to no. ma- really make an impact. They won in Sri Lanka, yes, but Sri Lankan batsmen were not really interested in batting out sessions or batting out days. Indian batsmen are interested in doing that. Chiteshwar Pujara could bat for five days if you allow him. So um, it, it's about... In England's pace attack, Chofra Archer, James Anderson, Stuart Broad, Chris Wokes, get them into the game, let them attack the top order. Ben Stokes, obviously, with his uh, medium pace as well. The, the English spinners have to play a support role. You cannot go and attack with the English spinners. 
Yeah, Don Best, Jack Leach expected, I think, to be chosen for this first test. It's going to be fascinating. Cannot wait for it all to unfold. That's the view then from the Indian camp. We're going to be joined up next by Nick Compton, a man who has tasted success over in India, lest we forget the winter of 2012 with England. Before I let you go, Chetan, I've got to get your thoughts. Give me a prediction then. Is it going to be another 4-0 whitewash? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, there are chances of that happening, but I don't want to sound cocky. Um, <laughs> let's let's say 3-1, because obviously there's a pink ball test, uh, which is going to be the third test in Embavad. It's a new ground, new pitch. You don't know how it's going to play. And the pink ball is very, very unpredictable. And uh, yes, India have done well with the pink. Uh, they, they have a mixed, mixed result. I would say they have done well. But England have more experience playing with the pink ball. They have a really good pace attack. So... Uh, 3-1, maybe? Ah, like it. To India. 3-1 to India. 3-1 to India. Don't you worry, Chetan. I knew what you were meaning. All the Indian fans remain big fans of yours after that prediction. Now then, one man who has been to India, one man who has tasted success in India. It's our good mucker. It's a man that we've not caught up with in a while. Delighted to say that taking a bit of time out of his work with super sports down in South Africa, Nick Compton joins us live on the line. Evening to you, Compo. Good evening. Great to be back on, mate. It's... uh unprecedented times but so good that sports uh, on our TVs and we're great to about to watch a, you know hopefully a very well contested series I mean England and India um, I have to say remembering back in 2012-13 when you know we beat India it was uh, it was definitely one of the highlights of my career and uh, you know to anyone who's a, a cricket fan will know just how much the Indians love their cricket what a, uh, how much they celebrate it and and of course, just how competitive the Indians are in their backyard. Yeah, listen, give us a semblance, Compo. You you played cricket at the highest level. Heading into India, is it to go over there and win a series? Is that the most difficult thing to do in all of cricket? I think it's one of the most difficult things. There's no doubt. I suppose you put that in the same bracket as going to Australia and winning the Ashes, um, playing India in their backyard. I think one of the reasons why it's regarded as um, a, a very difficult feat is because of the conditions. You know, uh, you know the Indians and the Asian subcontinent conditions are very different from what you know an English player would find at home, or an Australian would find, or even a South African would find. So um, it, it makes it for a, you know you're going somewhere where the conditions are foreign, where they're obviously they they're very adept at it. They know how to win, how to play there, and of course their players are very good at it. So. It does make it very competitive and difficult, but um, you're right. I think being a part of that England team that successfully beat England was you know, an incredible experience. I think, you know, you definitely have to have uh, two good spinners, which uh, England had at the time. You know, Graham Swan, one of the, the best off spinners in the world, and, and Monty Panosar again, when he was on song, he was um, he was fantastic. So, you know, we had two match winners there, and some pretty good players around it, Kevin Peterson and Alistair Cook and those sort of guys. So it all came together. Um, and, you know, to win test series abroad, things definitely have to come together. You know, A, the team has to be in a, in a, in a good place. Players need to be in good form. And you've got to have your match winners perform. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Yeah, let's talk about match winners. And I'll maybe come back. I'm quite keen to know your abiding memory of that winter tour down in 2012, 2013, I think it was. But before we do that, let's look at this upcoming series. A lot of talk in the build-up tour. England still struggling 
for that opening partnership. I know it was uh, it was Dom Sibley and Zach Crawley over there in, in Sri Lanka. I know now Rory Burns has come back into the fold. I mean, you've obviously played at the top of the order. What do you need? What kind of minerals do you need? And who would get your nod for this opening test? Yeah, it's a difficult one. I mean, I have to say I was quite critical of this of the, of the team that they selected, not so much in the bowling department, but, you know, how you can leave someone like Johnny Bairstow out of a tour like India, for me, is bizarre. Um, there's no other way to put it. I mean, you've got a senior batter who's, um, you know, been successful around the world, who's probably arguably one of the best one-day players in the world, plays in the IPL. Um, it just uh, is bizarre. He's just won his test. Uh, his test place back um, batting at number three in subcontinent conditions in Sri Lanka and played very well so very bizarre you're suddenly bringing in a guy like Zach Crawley who opened the batting in Sri Lanka and obviously struggled Um, he's a young player he's an exciting young player and he did very well in England and I almost feel that they've got it the wrong way around I'd almost leave Crawley to, to play in England although him being in India is, is obviously gaining experience, and, and that's what you want with your young players. But this isn't a tour about gaining experience. This is about a, a tour about playing your best team and winning. And uh, But in saying that, we have got what we've got. And uh, I would go with Rory Burns at the top of the order. One, because I think he's the type of player that can really batten down the hatches. He is a bit awkward. Um, he has different ways of scoring runs, but he's effective. And he's somebody who I think earns his place there. And um, you'd have to say Dom Sibley's also got the same sort of credentials. Um, in some ways, Zach Crawley, for me, would, would probably be the guy that would bat at number three if he's going to play. So I just think that you need two guys who have the ability to stay in and uh, occupy the crease. And I think in Sibley and Burns, you've got that. I think Crawley, for me, is a bit more of a stroke player. And perhaps in subcontinent conditions, he's better off coming in at number three. I think that's where he's been successful for England in the past. So it's a difficult one for England to work out. Um, but there's no doubt that the success behind our tour was the fact that Alistair Cook played incredibly well. Um, I managed to hang around and give him some support and, and build some sort of funda- foundation for the likes of your Kevin Petersons uh, and Bells and, and, and Matt Prize. And the equivalent of that now would be your Stokes, your Butlers, um, your Joe Roots. So, you know, the game hasn't changed. Five-day test cricket hasn't changed. And there's absolutely no doubt that, um, you know, test cricket, the length of it hasn't changed either. It is five days and you've got to find a way to bat for long periods of time. Um, and, you know, I think you're going to have to go with form. Uh, you know, Sibley scored a, a half-century um, and uh, I suppose Zach Crawley didn't. So you would probably say that Sibley would keep his place. Uh, Rory Burns is probably more of a senior opener. And in some ways, it's probably between Burns and Crawley. Um, but just how they put that team together is going to be interesting. What about, uh, and you've already alluded to it, Compo, you need two good spinners. And I guess Don Bess and, and Jack Leach. I know Mo and Ali's on the tour as well, but you would imagine that would be the two. Then it's two from three. Joffre Archer, Stuart Broad, Jimmy Anderson. Oi, oi, oi. Make our minds up for that. Who do you pick from those three? Look, I think the time has come now where the selectors have decided that Broad and Anderson probably won't play together unless it's in swinging conditions at Trent Bridge or in England, which makes sense, of course, because you know that's where they've been so effective over their careers. There's no doubt that having their experience, one of them, in the bowling attack is important, and they did that pretty well in Sri Lanka. Although, let's not get too excited, because Sri Lanka, I don't think, and don't take this for the Sri Lankan fans listening, I don't think that gives us any indication as to how the series is going to go. Um, Sri Lanka are a weakened test team at the moment. I love Sri Lankan cricket. And it's sad that they're not playing the way that they could do. So I, I don't think it's, a, it's an insight into where England are as a test team. Um, 
I don't think Bess and Leach are going to have the same sort of success that they had in Sri Lanka as they're going to have in India. You're coming up against the likes of Rohit Sharma, Virat Kohli, Rahane, Pajara. Um, these are the best players of spin in the world. And when you couple that playing in their backyard, it's going to be a, a really, really, really tough test for Leach and Beth. And, you know, I hope that they go well. Look, one thing I will say is you're not going to get a sterner test or a, a greater opportunity to really um, learn your trade. Um, but again, we need bowlers that have done it and bowlers that are ready to take on that sort of um, you know, challenge. And I think this is going to be a big challenge for them. It's probably the biggest challenge you can get in cricket. So um, are they going to be up to it? Time will tell. Um, perhaps they can surprise us. Perhaps they can really grow and Don Best can suddenly really you know, do something special in India. Um, you know, I think if you're a betting man, you'd probably have your money on Kohli and Sharma at this stage, wouldn't you? Um, you know, and it, that's not me not being an England fan or anything like that. I think it's just, you know, the odds are, are probably set up in their favour. So that is the challenge right now. Uh, Mo and Ali, for me, um, will probably not start um, because they want to show continuity and consistency. But I'd be surprised if he didn't perhaps come into the series at some point, you know, mm-hmm. both from a batting perspective, play spin well, and counter-attack. And, of course, he's, he's been very successful as an off-spinner against India and has experience. So... Um, I, the bold move would be to start with Monelli. I would do that. Um, but I don't think they're going to do that. And I think in some ways, a lot will depend on fitness, whether they go with Broder Anderson. I think they'll try and play one or two of them at different stages. Um, will one play all the way through the, the, the Test Match Series? Possibly not. Um, I would think that they might use them injury dependence. What physical state are they in right now? Who's the fitter of the two? Who's ready to go? That'll come down to physio, stroke coach um, conversations um, and also combinations. You know, what state is Joffre Archer in? He missed out in Sri Lanka, but I think he's got to play. Um, I think that pace, you know, the X factor um, is, is very, very important. So um, a tough decision, of course. But, uh, you know, you've got Anderson abroad. They, they're both, you know, sort of experienced campaigners. And there's no doubt they'll play a part in, in, in every test match. Yeah. Listen, before you go, I've got to get very quickly, Compo. Your abiding memory of 2012-13, what stuck with you more than anything else after all these years? I think for me, mate, winning those, uh, hitting those winning runs in, in Mumbai um, and going one all in the series, you know, there's no doubt. Uh, when I looked behind me and saw the likes of Dhoni, Saywag, Tendulkar and Kohli in the slipcord, and, you know, there was a part of you as a, you know, as a cricketer, you just thought, wow, this is... This is quite incredible, you know, to be playing here and to actually be a team with those sort of names. I think, you know, I had aspired to play international cricket and to be standing there and getting the winning rounds with my captain, Alistair Cook, was probably the best feeling I had. And again, managed to replicate that at Eden Gardens in the in the next test to go 2-1 up. So very nice motions. The Barmy Army singing my song um, as we walked off. You know, it was a it was a great moment. There's no doubt that um, that will go down as a highlight in my career. I think you know it's just such a great place to play cricket, and if you get the opportunity, as these England players are now, they just they must try and soak it up. And mm. whether they win or lose, it's just an amazing opportunity. Amazing memories, Compo. Last one, very quickly. Prediction then: series four matches. Who comes out on top? Um, look, you know, I'm, I'm an England fan through and through. I'd have to say that India. Our favourites. I mean, that's just a fact. They've beaten Australia abroad with a, a slightly weakened team. Kohli wasn't even in there. They're going back to their home conditions. They've got to be um, feeling confident. I'd have to say that at the moment, um, India are firm favourites. Um, 
you know, and I would probably go with 2-0 um, to them. I think it's going to be very, very challenging for England. I think England have got the match winners. They've got the battlers. They've got Stokes. He's going to have to turn up. Stokes is, is massive, both with bat and ball. Um, and one of the spinners is going to have to really turn up. There's no doubt. Both spinners have to play well. If, if they get taken out of the attack or nullified, it's going to be a, a really apple battle for England. The voice there of Nick Compton. You've heard it here first then. 2-0 India. It's going to be nip and tuck all the way. This is Extra Time. We are building up to a monster. There's so much going on, whether it be the cricket, football, whether it be the Super Bowl. I mean, there's just so much. And there is the small matter of the Rugby Six Nations. One man who's not slept a wink all week. He's like a kid at Christmas. Is the former Scotland scrum half, represented Edinburgh, Gloucester, Newcastle. Good friend of the show. 31 caps for his beloved nation. It is Rory Lawson. And we say a very good evening or afternoon as it is over there in the UK to you, Rory. Hi, Chris. Uh, I know where I'd rather be given the wind and rain <laughs> smashing off my window right now but uh, it's great to be with you albeit from a few thousand miles away yeah indeed Rory yeah listen the weather I've got to be honest beautiful over here not to rub it in Rory but hey listen you're going to be a lucky boy because whilst fans are going to be like us are going to have to be on the television screen on the sofa you're going to be commentating you're going to be in these wonderful venues you're going to be at Twickenham on Saturday it is Scotland England the Rugby Six Nations back it seems so quick as well but of course they had those October kind of autumn internationals but the Six Nations back we've got to start with Scotland against England 1983 for the last time that our boys went down to Twickenham and came away with victory optimistic that that is about to end this week I've travelled um to Twickenham on many many an occasion uh with what turned out to be false optimism <laughs> um on on this occasion I think I can look at it and say you know, it's Scotland have a, a good side. It is a it is a, a side who are, you know, there's a lot of fully fit players in there. Not many guys missing. Gregor Townsend's got depth to choose from. They didn't have a, a great Autumn Nations Cup, but I don't think many teams did. It was just a it was a bit of a damp squib all in all. Um, there's lots to play for. It's been a funny build up over here uh, towards the Six Nations. Obviously, in in years gone by, um, almost 150 years since. Uh, you know, it is the 150th anniversary of that first Scotland-England game. But in, in all, almost all of those years, pals would have been planning, you know, pre-match beers beforehand or whose house you were going to watch that or what pub you might go to to watch that. This year, obviously, very different. Everybody at home, ready to settle in. But And, and sport is the only thing that differentiates the week from the weekend. So <laughs> I think um, there'll be a lot of eyes on Twickenham. I'll be lucky to be there albeit it is very strange not having the fans. But I think we're... I really, really hope that the game lives up to its billing because you've got two really high-quality sides. You've got the defending champions at home, but Scotland looking to go down there and uh, change the look of the history books with a win. Yeah, England, a lot of injury problems. I know Eddie Jones... And listen, I say a lot of injury problems. They've got the depth to back it up to England. They've arguably got the deepest talent pool, and I include All Blacks in all of that. But does that give you hope? I mean, come on, sell it to me, Rory. Are we gonna be, am I going to be singing The Flower of Scotland at 2am? And the missus is going to hate me for that, <laughs> if that's indeed the case, on Saturday night. Well, I think if you weigh it up, and one of the one of the concerning things for me is that the media haven't been talking much about England, and they've certainly not been talking about the players who who are going to actually play for England at the weekend. And if they are, they're talking about the Saracens players. 
the guys like Elliot, Elliot Daly, Maru Atoji, who haven't had, uh, Owen Farrell, who haven't had any action since the 8th of December. They're talking about Billy Vunapola, who is a guy that needs game time. He's played one game since the 8th of December, and it was in a pre-season Saracens loss to Ealing Trailfinders. <laughs> who, I hear you say. Yeah. Now, so when, when, you, when you talk about that and you chuck into the equation that the likes of Manu Tuolangi are missing, that the likes of Joe Marlon, Marco Vunapola, the first and second choice loose head props, Kyle Sinclair, the, the first choice tight head prop, Joe Launchbury, Sam Underhill, you know, you're starting to get into the bones of, yes, there's an awful lot of quality out there, but Scotland do have an opportunity, I believe. I think a lot of eyes will be on Cam Redpath making his debut for Scotland in the number 12 jersey. For England, Ollie Lawrence, opposite him. Those two played in the same England under-20s midfield just 18 months ago. Um, and they're now going toe-to-toe in the number 12 jerseys. I think that's going to be a huge battle. But... Um, yeah, I, I think for, for England, they'll have a, a real confidence about them. They, they have a belief. They, they claim to obviously train well above test intensity to make test match rugby um, much easier. But for Scotland, I think when I look at the Scotland side, I look at a team that Gregor Townsend's picked to go out there and try to attack England, a very good England defence, and expose them. And obviously, Finn Russell grabs the headlines yeah. in that mix, having missed the bones the majority of the 2020 season. Give me a score prediction then, Rory. Come on. What are you, what are you telling me? Are Scotland finally going to end 30, oh, what is it, 37 years of hurt? OK, I'm going to take you back two years. The 50 minutes leading up to the final whistle... Scotland won that part of the game 38-7 <laughs> so you know if they could only just pin on I'd, yeah. I'd take a nil-nil for the first 30 minutes if, um, if I thought that was coming um, no you know what in, in, in an ideal scenario I look at an absolute classic and I say Scotland edge at 25-28 will that happen I, you know I, I go down there with such high hopes it's the first game of the Six Nations it will be very edgy. It will be very strange without the crowd. Um, if Scotland start well, I think there could be you, you could be singing Flower of Scotland oh. at two o'clock in the morning. Oh, I love it. But I don't think they can afford to be three tries down no. in 15 minutes like they were two years ago. Absolutely not. The other, uh, the other two big games, let's not be disrespectful to any of the nations that are taking part in the Six Nations. Let's go to Sunday first, though. Cardiff, it is Wales against Ireland. A lot of a lot of conjecture around that Wales coach, Wayne Pivot. We'll get to him in a second. How do you see this match? Is this a biggie for Wales? Do Wales need to win this? Yeah, this is huge. It's huge for Wales. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, it's really not helped them, this Josh Adams scenario. Yeah. He's, he's, got, he's, he's gone to a family home on the weekend, popped the bubble... Um, for a, a you know a gender reveal um, party a family get together um, that ultimately has compromised the rest of the, of the squad. So he's he's been given the boot for two matches, um, so he won't be involved. But Wales are welcoming back a fully fit Toby Falatau, Dan Lydiot's in there, Tipperick. They've got Josh Navidi back, fit and ready. They've got George North playing some really good rugby, um, but. Even though they don't have the 80,000 fans behind them at the Principality, they will be fully aware of the importance for lifting the Welsh nation, who, quite frankly, since Wayne Pivak has come into replace Warren Gatland, have been 
have been looking for answers to the many questions that have been asked. It's been a transition, the inevitable transition after over a decade under Warren Gatland, a different game plan. Yeah, but the game the game plan of a more expansive game didn't hasn't really worked for PVAC. So it'll be interesting to see how, how his side go about their business. Um, equally, Andy Farrell will be looking to get a lot more and evolve the performance of his Irish squad. Um, it's a big game. Everybody talks about it every single year in the Six Nations. Win your first game and you've got momentum lose your first game and yeah. you're constantly scrambling and that one is a huge huge game in Cardiff on Sunday How do you see it going? An Ireland win or do Wales get over the line? If it's an arm wrestle I think Ireland will win Interesting. Um, if Wales can sort out their, their, their line out and if they can get I'll be interested to see if Dan, if Dan Bigger gets the nod at 10 and if he can get a Welsh backline moving um, it's a Welsh backline who have lacked creativity for a couple of years now but they have they have all the capabilities of doing so, and I really I really like Wayne Pivac as a bloke. I like his coaching methodology. If they can click with the attacking game that he wants them to play, I think they can cause Ireland problems. So, I think Wales are desperate. I think they're absolutely desperate, and with that, I think they'll just edge it. And what about the French, Rory? They impressed me. This new nine and ten axis that they've got. These two youngsters that are, you know, lighting up French rugby. They are getting an awful lot of Northern Hemisphere rugby fans excited. Again, it's the old kind of cliche. Are they the dark horses, the French? You know what? I think that I think they've gone beyond the dark horse now. I think they've shown enough to to now be properly in the mix mm. as as a top team. And you know, people. A lot of people are saying if England don't win it, then France are their second favourites. Um, this this French side are high quality. And you mentioned the halfbacks. Um, Emil Antimac, uh, the fly half, will probably feature at some stage, but not in the first game. He's he's had this injury um, for the the past number of weeks. Um, but Antoine Dupont at scrum half is world class. Mm. He is up there with the very best in the game. Um, they've picked a, a really powerful pack. You know, us Scots know Gregory Aldridge at number eight. Um, he's, he loves scoring tries against Scotland. You know, across the board, you've got Dupont at nine, Mathieu Jalabert lighting up the top 14 for Bordeaux. In the midfield, you've got Gael Fick, who's a wonder player, their defensive leader. And you've got to- Teddy Thomas on the wing, who I believe, if... If I if I was given a thirty meter head start in my pump on him in in a sixty meter dash, he'd still reel me in. He is as much of a Rolls Royce as you'll ever come across in the game. I think they'll go to Rome and I think they'll tear Italy to pieces and get out the blocks fast and and really roll into the Six Nations. I'm looking forward to hearing your dulcet tones, Rory. You are in the commentary box. You are on the world global feed. You do an excellent job. You know that, though. I'm not just blowing hot air up your backside. One (laughs) word to set you off into the night with, and that is a winner overall. Who is going to emerge victorious? The country's name, please, Rory. And we will hold you to this. And I will be writing an email of complaint to the world feed if you get it wrong. Even if it's Scotland. <laughs> no, I'll let you off if it's that, Rory. If Scotland win on Saturday, Oof. they'll win the championship. If they don't, Oof. England will. Okay, that's interesting. You've got me excited. Scotland win at Twickenham. You heard it here first. They go on and win the championship. Rory Lawson, cannot wait to hear your comms. You'll be in the commentary box this coming Saturday. Twickenham, England against Scotland for BBC, BBC Five Live. You'll be on the global feed. If you heard it here first, then win on Saturday. The Scots will be victorious. <laughs> 
Thank you for listening to the Extra Time Podcast. With myself, Chris McCarty, and Robbie Greenfield. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate it, and please do give us a review. This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today.